Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be uh, for this morning. You know, in today's culture, young people's attitudes are changing about marriage. Um, we, uh, we're seeing that young people are getting married at a later age than probably many of us remember um, when, when our peers were getting married. Um, in fact, some are seeing marriage as just being an old-fashioned institution. And they believe that, you know, you can have good family stability without even having to have to get married at all. We're seeing that cohabitation is becoming a, um, it's a, a widely popular thing now to, to live with someone before you decide to get married. And we see that cultures continually to go through these various things, right? I mean, we've seen it with, you know, some of you remember, um, it was not uncommon for teenagers to get married, to get right out of high school. You know, you see people getting married. There are some cultures that they have arranged marriages. I'm for that, by the way. <laughs> they have arranged marriages. In fact, what may sound a little funny to you is that most of human history, love didn't play any role in marriage whatsoever. In fact, they believed that this is way too serious of a decision for it to be based on fragile emotions. And this, this was, went up until like the 17th, 18th century. Ironically, when we started taking charge of things ourselves, <laughs> uh, divorce rates went up too. So maybe they knew something we didn't. But the Corinthian church, they are dealing with some really strange things. In fact, if we're going to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we really have to understand the context that this chapter is built. And one of the things is that the church was divided among many things, one was this pro-celibacy group versus this group that believed anything goes, which is what Paul had been dealing with in chapters 5 and 6. Now, I don't think any of us have ever grown up, regardless of what the culture is, where you learn that, you know, well, being a Christian, that means that you shouldn't have sexual relations with your spouse because it's a spiritual thing. But that's the kind of thing they were dealing with. Nor have we ever dealt with, and I wouldn't think, to think, well, you know what, if your spouse wants to go and, and, and be with a prostitute, then that's okay. But those are things that they were dealing with as well, these very much these extremes. One thing we need to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that there is a, it's kind of a, a new portion. He begins this way, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Anytime you see now concerning, that's the English Standard Version, whatever yours says there in verse 1, anytime you see this now concerning, it is starting a new section. And it's answering these questions that the Corinthians had written. Why is that important to us in context? Because Paul is dealing with specific questions. And sometimes we want to go to 1 Corinthians 7, and we feel like that's going to answer all the questions that we have about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and so forth. That is not the intent that Paul was given. He is dealing with now concerning the questions that you ask specifically about these things. Something else about the context is that Paul gives more personal advice 
than he does doctrinal statements. He just does. You're going to hear him say this a lot. You know, that, okay, this is what I think, but this is not necessarily a command of the Lord. And you're going to hear him say, I think this is better, but, you know, if you end up not doing this, I mean, you're going to hear that a lot. And this is very unusual with Paul. But when it comes to this topic, he kind of takes this, this tone. The other thing, and this is really important, Paul gave much of his advice based on his belief that Jesus was returning soon. If you look at verse 31, you'll see it for yourself. Paul believed Jesus was coming soon. In fact, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, Paul says, Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He really believed that this was, this was going to happen in their lifetime. And so some of the advice that he gives is based on that fact, okay? So, if you're single in here, don't go to sleep on me. If you're a widow, widower, don't go to sleep on me, because Paul has some stuff to say to you too. So we're going to take this big chapter, <laughs> these, these 40 verses, and I'm going to do the very best job that I possibly can, and we're going to start with those who are married. Now, we just don't have the time to read all 40 verses this morning. But Paul does begin with this slogan. It's a Corinthian slogan. And the slogan says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he's talking about those who are married. And this pro-celibacy group felt like, okay, we're now spiritual beings, therefore we don't need to get involved in this in, in sexual relationships, in, even in marriage. And probably some of you are like, how in the world did they come to this conclusion? Join us on more Wild Talk Thursday night and we'll, we'll talk about it. But what I want us to see here this morning is that there is an importance of a sexual relationship within marriage. I'm not trying to be crude this morning, but it's very important as to what he has to say to us. And he gives reasons why this is important in verse 2 and verse 5. And he says, so that, you, so that your partner isn't tempted. Paul's already dealt with this pornea. Peyton talked about it when, when he was dealing with it. Sexual immorality. And he says it causes, it, it, it causes problems within the community of the faith. He says this kind of thing should not be. And so a husband and wife... They should not withhold from one another. They should not allow the other one to be frustrated sexually or to be uh, where they're to a point that they're tempted by other people who might throw themselves at them in a sexual way. And, and, and look, I know when it comes to the sexual relation in a marriage that, that it's more complicated than making a statement, but the statement needs to be made. Sex is important in the marriage relationship. I've counseled couples after an affair over the years, different places. And sometimes, sometimes you will find a partner who had been withholding. That doesn't mean that what the other person did was okay. Paul would say, no, all sexual immorality is wrong. But you can say it contributed. It became a part of things. 
The other reason he gives in verse 4 is that husbands and wives have a mutual submission. Now, this is interesting. And this would have blown the doors off the men in that culture, okay? You need to understand how progressive Paul is and really how progressive the gospel is. But he says, listen, you guys, your wife's body belong to you. But he also says, hey, your body belongs to your wives as well. And so there's this mutual submission that's supposed to happen. Sex and marriage should never be a part of bribes or rewards for good behavior. It should not be a threat of punishment in the marriage relationship. It is too important of an issue that he brings about here. He makes one concession in verse 5. He says, if you both mutually agree that for a time you will give yourselves to prayer, but it is to be temporary. It's not to be a permanent thing because then you need to come back so that one is not tempted. Now, the issue in Corinth, this issue of this pro-celibacy group, and you could also say the other group as well, the anything goes, it was creating divorce with, within, with Christians within the church. And Paul makes a very strong statement as to what he believes about Christians and divorce. And we are going to read it in verses 10 and 11. And he says to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Ah, here's one of the times where he says, this is not my opinion. And he says, the wife should not separate her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. He takes this from this command from the Lord. So that takes us back, it seems, to Matthew chapter 19 or Mark chapter 10, where he talks about marriage. Jesus has very specific things to say. And he does give, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew 19, he does give a concession to divorce. And he says, if one has been sexually immoral, the pornea, once again. But he doesn't say, you have to. He doesn't command you to do so. He simply says that that is an option. And sometimes in the church, we can see people say, oh, that happened? Oh, you need to get out of that. Where there actually may be ways of reconciliation. The other issue was Christians who are wanting to divorce they're unbelieving spouses. All right, so think about what Jesus had to say. Jesus in Matthew and in Mark and so forth, and, and you know, when he's dealing with this in Matthew, he is talking to those who are Jews. We are to assume that these are people who are part of the covenant people of God. Paul's mission was creating some new issues. There would be those who came, became Christians and followers of Jesus, but then their spouse may not. In fact, their, their spouse may be absolutely opposed to it. And so it was creating these mixed marriages, if you will. And so they began to wonder, okay, we've heard what Paul said before about, you know, uh, that which is you know, sinful and, and, and so forth, that it, it can contaminate the whole group and all this kind of stuff. And so they're thinking, well, maybe I need to divorce my spouse because they're unbelievers. And if I have sexual relations with them, then does that defile me? 
in some way? Does it make me unholy? And that's what Paul is addressing here uh, in these issues. Um, And so Paul's response, and he's speaking here, he says, of my own authority, not the Lord, but he says, listen, I need to make, we need to make some thoughts here because this is different than Jesus talking about what was happening in Matthew chapter 19 as he's speaking to those who are Jews. And he says, here's what I think. He says, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to remain in that marriage relationship, then you stay in that marriage relationship. But if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to depart, he says, let them depart. He says, you're no longer bound. It's actually a word he uses there. You're no longer bound to the marriage commitment in that situation. But as long as they are willing to stay in that, that's what you need to do. And he rejects this idea that being married to an unbeliever and even having relations with this unbeliever is going to make them unholy. In fact, he flips the tables like he just doesn't normally do. And he says, in fact, you can, as a believer, can make them holy in this relationship. It's like, what does that mean? Well, maybe Joe and I can talk about that more more while talk. But I imagine there were spouses, unbelieving spouses, they weren't real happy about these, their, their own husbands and wives becoming Christians. I mean, this whole talk of mutual submission, I mean, if you're a man, that's just degrading. You know, they, they won't let you go to prostitutes. They, they got a problem with, with drunkards. What, what do you mean they, you can't take each other to law? I mean... You know, what's going, this was very foreign to a lot of them. And so there were some that it would have been embarrassing and it would have been intolerable for some. And so he says, if the unbeliever wants to depart, then let them depart because God has called you to peace in verse 15. Okay, so then he talks to widows and widowers. We are going to read it because there's not a lot to read. So if, if you're here in chapter 7, Verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows. Now, the unmarried, he's talking about widowers, okay? These are people who have been married, but their spouse is, has passed, okay? And he says, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Ah, did you catch that part, as I am? Paul seems to be indicating to us that he's a widower. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it's better to marry than for them to burn with passion and then he goes on at the end of the chapter verse 39 a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the lord yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is and i think that i too have the spirit of god Now, what may really surprise you as widows and widowers is that what Paul says to them, he says, it would be better if you remain single. And again, it's like, you know, man, what is, think to context. What was one of the issues in the context? He believed that Jesus was coming soon. And he's going to do this with those who are single here in just a moment. But he does add a qualifier there, doesn't he? He says, but look, it's better for you to go ahead and marry than to burn with sexual passion. 
In fact, there are many who believe the text actually reads, if they are not controlling themselves, they should marry. So once again, he's looking at these, these situations and he's talking to widows and widowers. The next thing is to those who are single. Yeah, he's got something to say to you as well in verses 25 through 38. Now, the English Standard Version uses the word betrothed. Some of you have probably notes in there, uh, you know, little footnotes, and it'll say virgins. And he's really not talking about those who have never had any sexual relations whatsoever. He's talking about those that we might say are engaged. Although betrothed had a much stronger sense to it than just engaged. So there, there were those who were asking questions. Is it better for us to marry or is it better for us not to marry? And guess what Paul tells them? You're going to love this, Troy. He says, don't get married. Deja, don't get married. Elizabeth, don't get married. That's what he says. But don't freak out because verse 39, right? Uh, or 30, what is it, 31 or 39, where, where he says, listen, the reason I'm telling you this is the world is going to pass away soon. That's what he thinks. And so he sees marriage as it presents some kind of distraction that's going to hinder service to the Lord. And, and he gives another reason there. Married couples are going to experience worldly troubles. We don't even know what that means. We don't know if he's talking about, okay, in this relationship, you know, once you have kids and then you got all this other, or we don't know if he's talking about persecution. doesn't seem like there's any kind of major persecution of Christians. At the, we don't know. But what he says is, it, it, he doesn't tell us, but it seems that he thinks that marriage is going to distract them from serving the Lord. But here's what I want us to get from this, because look, that's the culture of what was happening there. But here's what I want us to get from this is he tells us that singleness, whether you are a widow or widower or even those who have never married before, that some have the gift of singleness. Marriage is a gift. But he has something that we don't often talk about in the church. That for some, singleness, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. And like all gifts... Some gifts may be temporary. Some gifts may be forever. But Paul argues here that, listen, these, these single folks, they are not second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. And we in the church shouldn't treat single people that way. In fact, it's better for some people to remain unmarried. It allows them the freedom to serve Christ without distraction Without having to worry, you know, I've got to get home because, you know, my wife is, is cooking or, or my husband is expecting me, you know, or the kids are going to need me. You know, and you, you don't have those things that are holding you down. Maybe I shouldn't have put it that way, holding you down. Glad my son and daughter-in-law aren't here because otherwise I wouldn't be a grandfather, right? So they have a gift. They have a gift to edify the church. Jesus said something similar to that in Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. Some churches have to be very careful in how they see ministry. I know, I see Clay out here. Clay can tell you, you know, he's seen lots of these churches and they're looking for a preacher. And a lot of them, a lot of them will put, we are looking for a man who is married. Or some of them put, 
who is married and has kids. They're very specific. And those who are single, generally, they don't, they're not looked at. It's harder for them. Now, don't fire me and go find a single guy. But, you know, what we're saying is, you know, you want to get whoever is that best person, but sometimes we can just go ahead and knock out people and say they're just not even someone we want to look at. But I want you to think about some things. John Stott. John Stott was an internationally known Anglican preacher, theologian. He remained unmarried his whole life in devotion to the Lord. He wanted to give himself completely to the Lord. He was one of the most influential ministers of his time. He wrote over 50 books. He wrote countless articles and things of that sort. Some of you are going to be much more familiar with this guy named Guyan Woods. Guyan Woods was married for a very short time. Some people don't even know he was married at all, but he was married for a short time. His wife divorced him. Um, apparently, she had some kind of mental illness. But he remained unmarried for his whole life. He gave... Uh, I mean, for the rest of his life. And so most of his long life, he was single as a minister. He preached several congregations. He debated. He wrote countless books. He published articles. He edited the Christian Chronicle. He was probably the greatest Greek scholar that we had in his time among the churches of Christ. We can flip that, too. And we can look at people like John Wesley. And maybe it would have been better if he had never been married because he was a workaholic. And eventually he watched his, his own marriage fall apart because of neglect. Or someone like William Carey. He was a Christian missionary, a minister, a translator, a social reformer, a culture, uh, cultural anthropologist who founded two colleges in India. And yet all of his work is somehow tarnished a little bit because of the sacrifices that he made his wife make who eventually lost her mind. And so that he could pursue these things. And so the point is that singleness, everyone needs to weigh those things out. Singleness is a gift to those who devote themselves to the Lord. And that's important. It's not just about being single. It's about being devoted to the Lord in that singleness. And I can tell you, there, there are people in this church, single folks that we have in this church, whether they've never been married or whether they're widows or widowers, that we couldn't do it without them. We're able to have and do things that, that we wouldn't be able to have and do without these folks in our church. And I was going to mention some of them, and Peyton said, oh, it might embarrass them, better not do that. So I, I'm not going to do that. But I can tell you this, we have some amazing single folks, and they are able to devote themselves to things that they probably wouldn't have otherwise if they we're married and have children. And that's not to discourage them from ever doing that, but it's to show that some people have this gift. And then Paul gives this general rule. Stay as you are when you're called. And he puts this thing right smack dab in the middle of 1 Corinthians 7. And when you read it, you're like, is Paul, does he have attention deficit disorder? Because it's like he's talking about marriage and widows and all this. And then all of a sudden he's talking about circumcision and bond servants. And it's like, what? Where is he going on this thing? And then he returns back to things. No, no, no. Paul is making, he's using those as examples between those who are married and unmarried. Circumcised or uncircumcised. 
slave or free. And he says those titles, those distinctions are not important to God. They're just not important. And so those of you who are rushing out and you feel like that I've got to have some kind of distinction to be pleasing to God, to be married or whether it's unmarried or whatever it may be, he's saying that's not what is the most important to God. And he's saying, relax. Relax. Quit getting caught up in all of this extremism. Remain with God wherever you find yourself. Now, when it comes to matters of marriage and singleness, we need to reflect and discern the will of God. You ever thought about how many scenarios are out there when it comes to marriage and divorce? Adultery, addiction, abandonment, mental illness, abuse. This just names a few. And if you're going to 1 Corinthians 7 in Matthew chapter 19 to find all of your answers to all of these scenarios, I'm here to tell you, it, you're not going to find it there. You're just not, it's not, that's not what it was intended to. Matthew chapter 19 tells you Jesus is answering a specific question about Moses giving this certificate of divorcement under the, uh, in, here under the law. 1 Corinthians 7, he's already told us what the context is about. I'm talking to you about a specific question about those who think that you ought to get divorced and remain celibate. And even those who, who say anything goes. What I really learn through this whole text is Paul's tone is so important. Because in contrast to other places, he makes explicit statements. Where he makes explicit statements, here he is very cautious. Given his personal preference of singleness, which we've seen, he could have easily gone with the pro-celibacy group. And said, listen, everybody should, should be doing what I'm doing. But he doesn't. And based on the fact that he grew up in, with his Jewish background, he could have very easily, and, and this pro-marriage upbringing, he could have very easily said, look, all you people who are advocating celibacy, he, says, you're just, you could have, he could have said, you're just being legalistic. You don't care about the goodness of God's creation. But what we find here in this text is he tries to distinguish his own opinions from the command of the Lord, and he invites the Corinthians to do the same. And I think that's exactly where we have to come in this text as well, is try to discern whether it's you're living a single life or whether you're getting engaged or whether you're, you are uh, contemplating divorce this morning or whether you're thinking about remarriage. Every believer, every believer, has to seriously weigh out all the situation and make their own decision in trying to discern the will of God. Some issues are clear, and some folks, they are just not clear. What's important is that we make choices from a pure heart and not out of a selfish heart, not out of our own lust, not out of just what we want, but what is God's will in all of this? 
And some are going to make some difficult decisions. And some are going to make some decisions that we're going to go, that was not wise. Just are. And, and sometimes in the church through the past, we've wanted to say, you know what? Those who aren't making those wise decisions, if they do get into a situation that we don't like, they need to be put out of the church. But Paul doesn't indicate that at all. He doesn't do that like he did with the incestuous man in chapter 5. In fact, what I find is that those who make bad decisions, they need the church probably now more than ever. Churches need to be careful creating lists of saying this is okay and this is not okay. Each situation has to be based on a case-by-case basis. And that even includes matters of, of adultery and matters of abandonment because there's, there's a possibility of, of reconciliation in those situations. Sometimes there's, there's, sometimes there's much more that's going on. Sometimes there's not. But each one needs to be, be looked at on those bases. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that we do not open the door for just anything goes and we begin to abuse our freedoms in Christ. And that's exactly what the other extreme was doing. Paul rejected extreme positions in the church. In my experience as a minister, I have found when you, when you find people who have extreme positions in the church, they bring about the greatest amount of divisiveness and factions and tension. But it's not just in the church. Look at your own workplace. Look in your political parties. Look wherever you want to go. Look in sports. You say the same thing. Now we're all going to continue to grow in our faith and we're all going to continue to, you know, deepen our faith and, and we're going to feel certain ways about certain things, but we've got to be very careful that we don't become like some of these Corinthians had and they who had believed that they were spiritually superior. That's one of the things that Paul was dealing with these folks. And by the way, Paul, the guy who was called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle of his, the guy who was filled with the Holy Spirit, even he struggled understanding a few things at times. For example, when exactly the Lord was coming. Because he kind of missed that one. We need to approach matters such as this and other matters always with prayer and humility. We can have certain beliefs and certain, we can stand strong in certain areas, but we've got to be very careful in thinking that we know it all. And when it comes to these matters of marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and widows and widowers and all of these things, then there's a whole lot that's going on. And they're not all these simple answers that we can just give. And that also means keeping things in their context. Because I can tell you this, I can make this Bible say whatever I want it to say. But if I'm interested in learning what it needs to say to me, I've got to approach it with humility and try to approach it in the right way. 
Let us uh, bow for a word of prayer as we get ready to close up here. Father, we come to you this day and we just thank you for bringing us into these relationships. Father, we're thankful for devoted Christians who continue to love one another, who bring this over into their marriage relationships, and they bring in this great amount of forgiveness and love and care and mercy. Father, I'm thankful for all those, and Father, it's probably all of us. We all have gone through things in our marriages and and, and yet, you, by your grace, you just continue to help us to be better, to get through things that maybe we wouldn't have gotten through if we had not had our faith. And Father, I'm so thankful for our single folks, for our widows and widowers. I'm thankful for the gift that they bring to this church. Father, just help us. Just help us as a church who's just filled with all kinds of folks and relationship situations. Help us to remain unified in you. May we always be humble. Help us, Father, always to consider each other. Help us, Father, in, in just maintaining the unity and the peace that you so desire within your church. And Father, just give us discernment. Give us that ability some, some way. And when, when we miss it, Father, give us grace. Just help us to get through it again. And so, Father, we just pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.